All right, everyone, this is DJ Audio Voyager, and I am so excited to be here um, with DJ Global Spins and with author T. Bowie, um, who is the author of The Best We Could Do, um, which is a national bestseller and ALA 2018 notable book selection um, and finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She has been here um, at Carolina for the last couple of days speaking um, with Maxi International House. She is the Maxi um, Visiting Fellow for this semester. Um, so she's been talking to some of their students, talking a little bit about her book um, and about her journey to America and in America with her family. Um, DJ Global Spins, did you read the book? I assume that you have. Um, and what did you think of it when you first read it? Yeah, I have read the book and I absolutely loved it because as I was discussing with you earlier while we were waiting, um, I really like this book because I think as a college student, a lot of what like the material that we read is just very heavy. It's very dense all the time. And in a way, like your novel talks it, very, it tackled very, like, difficult issues in, you know, society and all that, and it really made you think critically. But at the same time, like, like DJ Audio Voyager said that she was able to, like, sit down in one setting and just, like, read it completely through. So it really kind of mastered, like, you know, the heaviness of, like, really kind of trying to understand where somebody else comes from and try to understand the struggles of another person, but it also mastered the lightness that's supposed to come with a novel to where it really kind of pulls you in and it's really, it's very, um, you can read it in one setting. So I think that's really something very um, admirable about your writing skills. Yeah, and I think I think it was very, um, very um, refreshing to be able, I mean, for me, I haven't read a book cover to cover probably in about a year, just with school and with, you know, everything that I'm doing. So it was really nice over the weekend, actually, to just sit down and read it and be able to get through it. And I, I read it almost all in one sitting. Um, and so it is really nice. And I think it, it, is, it is refreshing, not only because it isn't as dense as, you know, like the majority of readings that we do, but also because it's in a different medium than what we normally do. And so I feel like that sort of like, kind of forced my brain to kind of like a, like a, like redirect itself to sort of read a novel like this. Um, but I think that it was really amazing and it really, it really made me ask a lot of questions, not only about my own life and my own family, but also about, you know, the American, um, like image of Vietnam and of the entire Vietnam conflict really. And like, and the, uh, and the one narrative that's often, I feel like kind of pushed, I guess in America, you know, when you're like in like high school and you're learning about the Vietnam war and they say, okay, like this is the narrative that we're going to tell you. And so it really, um, made me kind of um, reevaluate that and really look at that in a deeper way in a book that's less than 300 pages. And so I think that that is what's really, really important about the book. Um, but I loved it. And to all of our listeners out there, the, um, the name of the book, again, is The Best We Could Do. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Abrams Books, wherever you want. Maybe go to an actual bookstore. They exist still. So you may, you may not think it, but there's a Barnes and Noble in Russell House, so you can go and maybe it's there. Um, but definitely would recommend. So we are, again, going to be interviewing T. Bowie today. Um, do you want to, do you have anything you want to say? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And um, thank you for what you said about the book. That's actually my, one of the nicest compliments I've heard in a long time is that it was fun to read. <laughs> um, that's really important to me, actually. Um, I, love, I love movies. Um, and I love the experience of like sitting down and absorbing a whole story just in one shot like that. And it's, I guess like if, if, it took about, if it took you about two hours, it's about the, the length of a feature-length movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted you to have like that the pleasure of a story arc in that amount of time. So I'm really happy because I was in my head competing with all of the bad Vietnam War movies that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that I was able to make that experience. Um, so for the people here who are not familiar with your book or uh, what it was about, 
do you just kind of want to like maybe give like a little bit of like a synopsis about what it's about? Kind of like a little elevator pitch, if you will. Sure. Page one, I am in labor. <laughs> <laughs> and then on page two. <laughs> no. um, so start. It's, it starts out uh, in the throes of giving birth. Um, but you, mm-hmm. you see it from the point of view of the woman giving birth, which turns out is kind of unusual. Um, and... Then it goes backwards through all uh, six labors of my mother as a way to retrace our family history. And um, because she gave birth during some really historical moments, Mm -hmm. um, it's also a way to um, place us in time and space um, against the backdrop of the Vietnam War and beyond. Um, And also our journey as refugees from Vietnam to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Because my brother was born in a refugee camp along the way. Um, and then going backwards, I also set up the, the search, um, that I was going through as a young person, trying to understand where I came from, who I was, basically my origin story, which Mm -hmm. is, which is a very comic booky thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and it just so happens to be that my origin story includes all of this history. Mm -hmm. Um, so I go backwards into my parents' lives, um, before they became my parents, who were they and what was going on in the background of their lives. So, um, you get... Uh, a personal history, and then you also get um, uh, Vietnam's 20th century history, it turns out, from the 30s, the 1930s, uh, when it was still a French mm-hmm. colony, to when it gained independence, and when it was like briefly occupied by the Japanese during World War II, through the first Indochina War, when France tried to claim its colony back, to what the U.S. knows as the Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you, or for, not for those of you, for those of us, um, who maybe haven't read the book, kind of like introduce us, um, to the members of your family. So, um, I changed all of the names of the people who are alive to give them some Mm -hmm. semblance of privacy. So the character names in the book, um, I just call my mother and father, um, Ma and Bo, which is like the Vietnamese words, um, for mother and father. And then my sisters are Lan and Bic, and they're, um, seven and nine years older than me. So my, my idols when I was little. Yeah. And then there's my little brother, um, Thumb, in the book. He's three years younger than me. So we were the babies in the family. Gotcha. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm the oldest, so, and I'm definitely not my brother's idol. <laughs> Most definitely not. I think, I mean, I come home and he's like, hi. And then I see him two days later. And, I mean, I'll call my parents and I'll be like, oh, you know, is, is he there? Like, can I talk to him? And they're like, oh, he's playing video games and when I do manage to get him on the phone he's like hey how's school good he sounds like he's like, about 13 he's 16 he's okay yeah my brother's so, still like that and he's what like 22 I can't remember I can't keep track of his so age he's getting there I mean I guess I was like that you know like we all go through that period where we're like mm-hmm. don't talk to me I yeah wanna, I just want to listen to Nirvana in my room alone my son <laughs> just talking. turned 13 and he now says hey <laughs> Yeah. The monosyllabic, right. kind of barbaric, like teenage boy. <laughs> Sorry, teenage boys. <laughs> if you're listening, I mean, you know it's true. We like, love you anyway. We yeah. love you, but honestly, you're listening to like an internationally themed radio show. You're probably ahead of the rest of them. That's so where right. you go? Maybe, maybe you're a couple octaves higher. You know, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe you can like say things more than just. 
one word, one word answers. If you can say a multiple word answer and you're a teenager of any gender between the ages of 12 and 17. You'll be a rock kudos. star. Yes, Absolutely. you are ahead of your time. You're the next T-Buoy. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're the next T-Buoy. All right, DJ Global Spins, do you want to get into some more questions here? Absolutely. So just a little bit about, like, your personal history. Where did you attend university? Uh, I went to Cal, UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. um, for five years because I tried to pack in two majors. <laughs> gotcha. We both know how that is. DJ Audio Voyager and I, we both have. We're both double majors, so yeah. definitely. With yeah. a lot of extracurricular interests. Oh, I know this game. of course. <laughs> Yeah, you can study abroad too. Honest, and I know what's going on. Yeah, audio voyage and I—we were just talking about how like stressed out we constantly are and how we have to schedule every minute, but it's okay. It works. But what part of California? It's in—it's in the Bay Area. The Bay Area. In, yeah, in Berkeley, um, across the water from San Francisco. Oh, that must be pretty cool. But like, I know in California, like even though like all of us young people really want to go live there, at least visit. Like, I know like the cost of living is like super high. And, oh, it's like, bonkers now. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. At the same time, like I still really want to go. <laughs> yeah. But do you yeah. have like what are the different parts of California? Kind of like? So I grew up in Southern California in San Diego, where everything's far apart mm-hmm. and the weather's great. It's always like seventy something degrees and yeah. you're close to the beach. Um, but you have to drive everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then in Northern California, it's not always so warm. Um, you wear a lot of polar fleece <laughs> and, and, and now like those Uniqlo puffy jackets that mm-hmm. seems to be the Bay Area uniform yeah. um, and uh, I don't know you drink kombucha and <laughs> take take public transit more and ride bikes everywhere. Is that more of the hipster kind of area? It's kind of hipster I mean yeah. in the 60s it was super hippie it's yeah. like the, the, the headquarters for the student you know movement in mm-hmm. the 60s um, and it still has that flavor but all those folks are like a lot older now. Oh, that's yeah. still very cool, though. Um, so how old were you when you decided that you wanted to be an author slash illustrator, and what kind of brought you to that decision? I think that I always wanted to be, and this is cool, I, I think I wanted to be a writer, and I also wanted to be an artist, and I couldn't decide. So then later down the road, I realized that you could smash the two together. Yeah. I feel like for a lot of like college students, like, while we all have like these different areas that we're kind of interested in, it's very difficult to realize how they can meld. Yeah. And how like you can take just like these really not I mean in your case they weren't like super wide like differences, but um But definitely not taught yeah. together ever. There was no like comics yeah. major back then. Yeah, there really should be that would be such a fun class. I mean, my stick figures look a little chubby, but like <laughs> I would I would try my hardest in that class, and I still <laughs> I probably wouldn't get an A, but I'd still be pretty happy. I mean, there are MFAs <laughs> in comics now, not that yeah. many, but I teach in one. And really? actually, one of my students did a whole like thesis project with stick figures. It's called Stick World, oh, and it's amazing. There's hope. Yeah, yeah. there is hope. There's hope <laughs> <laughs> for all of us out there who claim that we're not good at art. There is like a way that you can channel that. Yeah, that's so cool. Where do you uh, teach? Um, at the California College of the Arts in oh, San Francisco. That's so cool. Oh, gosh. That's, that makes me really want to go to California <laughs> so bad just because, like, the weather here has been so insane. <laughs> and it makes me want to go to, like, the San Diego part that's, like, always 70. Like, that must be nice to actually have, like, a stable climate because <laughs> for us, it's constantly up and down four seasons yeah. in a week. It's, it's like, fabulous. you read the weather, but is that really the weather? It's mm-hmm. like, are we sure? Yeah, it's more of, like, a general, it's like a suggestion. <laughs> it's like... It's like, it might be sunny. <laughs> it might be raining. 
It might but be snowing. Who pack knows? everything. Yeah, just in I case. Guess. Yeah, get like a little emergency kit in your trunk of your car. Just like look like <laughs> some clothes from every season. That's what I do though. I mean, I'm from North Atlanta, and sometimes the weather is just so crazy that I mean, I always like have a coat. Mm-hmm. You know, I always have a rain jacket. I always have a long sleeve. Like. Yeah. You gotta be prepared. You gotta keep it on <laughs> for <and> everything. <laughs> See, that sounds kind of exciting to me. Growing up in San Diego, I was always so excited when there was like a storm. Yeah. <laughs> Those are like oh. really memorable in my mind. It's nice until you like start to get sick That's true. because of the weather. Right. But it's it's okay. At least at least it is very interesting. Like you're always kept on your toes. Okay, so you wrote this story all about your family. Mm-hmm. It, like, focuses all around you. And, like, has it always kind of been, like, an idea for you just, like, in the back of your mind? Or is this something that was just brought on by, like, a sudden inspiration? Like, yes, I want to write about my family. A graphic novel, because I didn't know how to do comics at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I had to teach myself. So this was a process that was just a really long time in the making. It was, and I was, you know, living life in the meantime. Like, I, um, I had a kid mm-hmm. before I started drawing it. And then um, I moved to California from New York and uh, helped open a school for um, English language learners, recent immigrants, refugees. Mm-hmm. And that was a crazy job. Yeah. It took all my time. Um, so I was working on the book like on holidays yeah. over the summer. So squeezing that in between other stuff, sometimes it was... Um, really hard to force myself to sit down and think about some really painful stuff mm-hmm. and and teach myself how to do this hard thing. And I wanted to give up a lot. So what I did was I told everybody that I was working on it. So the shame and guilt of mm. quitting the project yeah. so like, kept me motivated. Exactly. That makes sense. That's exactly how well I guess kind of I am in the sense that like whenever I do my homework or like I have to sit down to write an essay, I'm just like I tell my friends and I tell my mom and I'm just like, do not let me leave my room without like getting this done and so sometimes I'll just give them my phone and I'm just like just take it because like that's one of the main things that's going to distract me mm-hmm. right now yeah, that's very friend, disciplined my friend and I will go to the library um and we uh will like uh we'll trade phones mm-hmm. and we'll give each other a like list of like what we need to get done and we'll check in we'll be like okay have you done this and she's mm-hmm. like no I haven't and I'm like well do it like come on <laughs> get it together that is such a good idea I'm gonna so. do that with my son it's, I mean, it's, I don't know, I mean, he, he might be like, mom. Yeah. It can, <laughs> it can get a little mom, ugly when like, you do that, actually, because people, they want their phones back when they want it they back. Do. It's kind of like, it brings I out hate, the addict in them. Yeah. It's <laughs> it like, does, I was yeah. like, I don't want to be start twitching. Like, yeah. It's like a little bit, honestly. But I might do that. <laughs> or I might not want my son to know what's on my phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just remember, like, before you do it, just a little disclaimer. If any of you listeners out there are going to do the same thing with your children or your friends, like, just be prepared to maybe, like, throw some hands a little bit <laughs> to, like... Take off your earrings before. Yes, okay. definitely. All the jewelry. But um, you were talking about how, like, it's kind of, like, difficult to, like, sit down and, like, kind of bring up these kind of painful memories, um, not just for, like, you, but also for your family and all this stuff. Um, so, like, how did your family kind of uh, react when you told them that you were going to be writing a book about your family history and about, like, Vietnam history? And, like, like you spoke a lot. I feel like one of the main things about your book is just that it's so genuine. Mm. And it's, like, it's complicated in the sense that it's genuine, but it's also just, like, presented in a very, like, like simple manner. Yeah. It's very, like, very clear. And it's very, um, like, this is just how it was and how it is and all that stuff. And it was, like, very beautifully put. But, like, it was also, like... I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, and I feel how like, do they react? I feel like 
appreciate that. I feel like one of the things that I really liked mm-hmm. about the book was that, like, in in a lot of books that I read, when there is a like a, a difficult topic, the author is like, oh, I'm gonna kind of wait in really, really slowly because yeah. I'm not sure how you know like like my readers are gonna feel. And I really appreciated in the book that you were like, yeah, this is hard, but I'm gonna dive right into it. Like, yeah. it is hard. We're all afraid of it, but I think that it was very honest and very good. You mm-hmm. know, for me in a way to read that and to not be afraid of that and to be like, okay, like, this is how it is. This is the emotion that I was going through that I was feeling at this moment and you shouldn't be afraid of it. Like, we need to be honest mm. about our emotions and what we're feeling. So I feel like that bluntness was something that I really, really appreciated. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. I think it took me a while to arrive at that. There are mm-hmm. a lot of iterations of the book that are a lot more windy and mm-hmm. circuitous. Um, and I think that the process of editing and re- rewriting, redrawing helped me get to that clear voice that, mm-hmm. that you're talking about. I really appreciate that you pointed that out. That was, that was something that I was working for. Because um, I think the subject matter is already dramatic enough, so mm-hmm. you don't need to, you know, heighten that yeah. so much with the way that you write about it. I think that the art does that job, too. Oh, it absolutely does. Um, it really does. It's absolutely gorgeous, in my opinion. But. Yeah, I feel like drawing um, serves the same function as like music does mm-hmm. in a film like that's where your emotions can fly and um, you know have the flutters and then so then the text I think should be really just blunt and clear and as simple as possible um, but I think that it it took me a lot of growing up which yeah. happened over the course of the 10-12 years I was working yeah. on it like I was much angrier and much more academic when I started and I had big words, and then my goal by the end was, like, take out all the big words, show, don't tell, mm-hmm. um, and try not to use any words that other people have used a lot already because mm-hmm. we're trying to get to a truth um, that we can actually feel and not just understand in our heads. Yeah, something that kind of, like, resounds within. Yeah, and I think that's the, 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 the role of the artist is to push themselves to find new language for things that we want to express because mm-hmm. it's easy to... Um, latch on to buzzwords that you learn because they're so amazing the first time that you learn them, right? You're like, oh, gosh, somebody came up with a word that describes how I feel or how I think yeah. about something. But then the more you use those words over and over again, the less meaning that they have. Mm-hmm. So you, as the artist, have to find new ways to express those things for the people who come after you. Because mm-hmm. every time you look at, like, art, like, sometimes you can just you can draw different things based on where you are. And sometimes you can do that with words, too. But I feel like it's much... Um, more of a common thing to do with art but yeah so it, it really it just was such like a candid like subject like was your family just like immediately on board with everything or did it like take a little bit of persuasion oh I'm <clears throat> I'm you know it's an Asian family so I told them that I was working on a school project <laughs> 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 and so they're like okay um <clears throat> so it was a sneaky way to Mm-hmm. spend quality time with my parents asking them difficult questions. Mm-hmm. But actually, I didn't ask them such difficult questions. I, I also sort of snuck in a lot of concrete questions about, like, what they were wearing or how old were they or, like, really simpler things to remember. And I didn't ask them to analyze things until I had a lot more material. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times I was analyzing things and then just writing my narrative and then checking back with them to see if it was right. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like getting your foot in the door with like some of the more of the concrete questions mm-hmm. and kind of like getting them very involved 
Um, were you expecting this to be such a big success? Because obviously it's like one of the awards. <laughs> and like it's really, it's captured <clears throat> the attention of like um, Maxi at USC because they're using this as like their book discussion and everything. No, I was not expecting to be still talking about the book mm-hmm. two years later. This is incredible. Um, I mean, there are things that you do to motivate yourself when you're drawing 10 to 14 hours a day yeah. at your alone at your desk, you know, for, for, for months on end. Um, and some of those things are imagining, like, getting interviewed about the book and what you would say about it, you know. Yeah. But, like, these are just, like, this, this is just delirium in the middle of the night kind of thinking. Um, but, no, this, this has been an incredible journey, and it's really amazing to get to travel to different parts of the country to talk to people and realize mm-hmm. um, how many people have similar experiences, even if they don't come from the same background. And it's also really exciting just to have a dialogue with folks in different parts of the country. Yeah. Definitely. I feel like that's really just a testament to how much people really kind of crave the truth and they really crave like the like um, genuineness mm-hmm. that we were talking about earlier um, and just how like it's it's so refreshing to really be able to kind of get a different point of view from someone, you know, because like, like you said, there are always like these like depictions of the Vietnam War that are just very, very one-sided. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely very interesting to be able to see something else cool if i'm right from the book you were very young when you left vietnam correct i was three years old barely a person okay so do you have like any kind of memories like firsthand from vietnam or is a lot of it like when you um you know what you were told by like your family and all that stuff yeah i have like maybe three flashbulb memories of Mm -hmm. my own and then everything else is like through what my family has told me and then doing supplemental reading and research to mm-hmm. fact check and make just make sure I have the context right. So, um, yeah, the whole process of asking questions and interviewing, that's my that's my tool. Yeah. What, you're, what you're doing here is, like, what I do so that I can get um, history down for other folks. Mm-hmm. And so when you went back to Vietnam with your family as an adult, how, um, how did that, like, make you feel? What was that experience kind of like for you? It was wild. Yeah. Um, it's funny, like, the weather is so important, right? Yeah. So we, we've been talking about how humid the southeast is, and mm-hmm. Vietnam is the same. It's tropical, mm-hmm. and it um, it's in your face. And then it's also really loud in Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon. When you arrive there, there's, like, a thousand people waiting outside for their families to arrive. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you can just feel all that humanity and all of that heat and, uh, like, on your skin right away. And I, I felt like I, I was coming home. Yeah? Yeah. Mm, that's so sweet. Because I know for Americans, a lot of that is, like, we have, like, this weird kind of duality of identity where, like, we have all these forces that pull us together as American and make us identify as that. But at the same time, a lot of us come from uh, different families and, like, different genealogies that are um, a lot of us, like, a lot of uh, different people from here are, like, refugees or come from refugee families um, come because of political or religious persecution or just, like, trying to escape a life that was, you know, not good and really hoping for something better. Um, so it's really kind of interesting because a lot of us, um, it's kind of like, you know, where do we come from? Mm-hmm. Like, where is that, like, history? Where are those roots? Mm-hmm. And so to be able to, like, go back and actually kind of retrace those, especially as, like, somebody who's first generation, um, where, like, the roots just feel that much closer. 
That definitely seems like a very cathartic kind of experience. Yeah, but the rest of the trip was also realizing all the ways in which I was not Vietnamese anymore yeah. either. Um, and that was cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like hard to because I felt yeah. like um, we were totally Americans traveling around in our tourist van. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I felt like we had neon dollar signs over our heads. <laughs> and it was really weird to, to like have that relationship with like folks who looked like mm-hmm. me, but like clearly were working class or just like really desperate for, for mm-hmm. money to live on. Yeah, it's definitely weird trying to see where you fall. Mm-hmm. So did your, like you were just saying, like when you went to Vietnam, like you felt like you were at home and then you kind of felt like, oh, I'm an American and like a, you know, like a little bit of like a foreign country. Did did your trip to Vietnam like change your image of yourself a little bit, like going back there um, for the first time? Um, it was unsettling for sure because I had grown up with it as Vietnam as an idea and mm-hmm. it was like this country that we had lost or it was like this absence. And that was why I drew mm-hmm. myself with like the shape of Vietnam like carved out of my chest because mm-hmm. it was, that was what it was to me. It was an absence. Mm-hmm. And then to go there and confront the reality of it made me have to rethink um, everything that I knew about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And that was part of my research. And I went back a second time to do more specific research just with my mom so that we didn't have the tourist fan or the dollar signs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could actually like talk to people more. <clears throat> and then... Um, between that trip and the last trip, I finished the book, and I think that was really cathartic, actually. Yeah. That was what um, finished the journey for me, so that now, the, the last time I was able to go back and look at Vietnam more objectively and not um, be searching for my origin story everywhere mm-hmm. and not, like, asking other people to explain to me who I was. I understood who I was. I understood that, like, Vietnam was a part of me, but I'm not necessarily a part of it. Mm-hmm. It's this country outside of me. There are 95 million people there, and they're they're Vietnamese, um, and they're not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're all different from each other, too. So I understand it like any other country. Yeah. Now. That's so interesting. Um, another thing that I really noticed in your book that really kind of stuck with me was uh, all, these ho- all this talk of, like, you spoke a little bit about, like, astral projection, like, in sleep, and, like, how that's, like, such a strong belief in Vietnam. Um like when you go to sleep and like your soul kind of like leaves your body and then like you come back and there was this one scene where like uh, this man was astral projecting apparently and then um his friends like dressed him up like a woman and when his soul came back they could he they couldn't find its body and how he was a very different man afterwards because he didn't like have his soul yeah or whatever and then there was the whole thing about uh like with babies like you're not supposed to name them like a very beautiful name or like say too many compliments because they're supposed to be evil spirits that'll like become jealous and harm the baby and I just I thought that like that's just like hauntingly beautiful like all those thank you very are there any other kind of superstition or not necessarily superstitions but just beliefs like that ghost stories yeah ghost stories. Vietnam is full of ghost stories and Vietnamese people love to scare their children with them um (laughs) and I was totally scared because this these these ghost stories were told not as entertainment, mm-hmm. but like just as reality. Mm-hmm. To me, that's terrifying because there are things that you can't see or control. Um, so I actually made a conscious decision as a kid growing up that I was going to not believe in those things anymore. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty wild to do the chapter about them. Yeah. It was unsettling. Um, mm-hmm. I had to watch a lot of horror movies to like get myself back in the headspace. Yeah. Um, and that, that was pretty wild. Yeah. 
so so now with your own son who's 13 I don't tell um, him any ghost stories yeah, or show him any say, horror stories you, yeah <laughs> how do you kind of like learn from your own experience like and does that change the way or not change the way but does that influence I guess the oh yeah he definitely was not showing him the exorcist when he was five years old <laughs> yeah I remember that part that shocked me um <laughs> The exorcist, and I, I, I saw that probably. I mean, I, I remember, I remember distinctly. I was older. I was probably like thirteen, and um, the, uh, the Shining was on like oh. a channel or something. And my mom was like, "Oh yes, let's watch it." And that I, is the most horrifying and movie. Like, and I was like, "Oh okay, cool, like whatever," because I love Jack Nicholson. I've oh. always loved him. I was always like, "Oh, he's such a good actor." He's a great and actor. I, and I went in, not expecting. I was like, "The Shining. Maybe it's about." A lighthouse. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and then I went in. Not about a lighthouse. If you've seen it, spoiler. Or, or if you haven't, I guess, spoiler alert. Like, not about that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, my mom has, you know, she was like, Silence of the Lambs. Let's watch that. Oh, and it was no. it was this summer. Like, she had been asking me for over, like, a year, maybe two years. And I finally relented. And I was like, fine, I'll watch Silence of the Lambs with you. And it's a good movie, but it's like, I can't imagine <laughs> being, you know, like, under the age of ten. And watching yeah. Anthony Hopkins in <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. Eating people. Like, I, I'm 20. I mean, I'm, I'm 20 now, and I still, like, my skin crawls. Like, I still can't. Like, are, you, are you sure you're not Vietnamese? Because your parents are putting all this pressure on you. They're showing you these horrifying movies really early in life. <laughs> I, I still know, can't My mom just them. really likes movies, so. Aww. She was like, she was like, it's a classic movie. You have to see it. That and then Misery. Oh yeah. Also, oh, which, the hobbling which I scene. love. I love those movies now. But when I watched them, I was like, never again. Never. Again. <laughs> I'm never gonna watch it again. And now I appreciate them. Those but, are heavy hitter movies but, that you yeah. named. I watched. I rewatched all of the movies that I could remember scaring me as a kid, and none of them were scary anymore because I could like see through the jump scares and the scary music. But The Shining actually is still horrifying, and I figured it out. It's, it's a lot of the camera angles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's filmed from a child's height, so oh. you can see a lot of ceilings and like those really long hallways. The one point perspective. I actually um, used a lot of that mm-hmm. in chapter three to wow. recreate that feeling. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. No, see, my scary movie as a child was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I love I that movie. Was the, the musical? Yes. <laughs> I, my mom would put it on, and I'd be like, no. And of course, like, like. In my head, I'd be like, "No, not you, Wait, is that the one with the flying bed? Yes, with the flying, <laughs> with the flying car. Okay, but my mom was still putting it on, and I, I don't remember exactly why. I just remember being terrified, and to this day, I will not watch it. Well, clowns are scary. Yes, but I don't. I don't know if there are any clowns in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I just. There were. I don't even remember. I do not remember the plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. I just remember being absolutely terrified. Right. Well, there are things that the like what I meant was like there are things that are supposed to be fun for kids that are actually terrifying. Like yeah. Mm-hmm. I watched uh, Barney when I was little, <laughs> and um, <laughs> there was this one movie at my grandparents' house that my cousin uh, and I always watched, and it was a Barney campfire sing-along, and so <laughs> there was this one Sounds scene spooky. where they were around the campfire, <laughs> and they were singing, you know, as the title implies, um, but then, like, this, like, they go into some cave, and then this bear comes out. It's a guy in a bear costume, mm-hmm. but that just makes it more terrifying. And he was in, like, this nightgown that was yellow <laughs> and had orange spots and had, like, a matching little cap. And that like was... the Berenstein Bears. Yes, exactly mm-hmm. like that. It's crossover. But, it's the world's first crossover episode. Yes, exactly. And it was terrifying because they were animated. That was, like, a, a costume. And it was terrifying. And, like, I had nightmares for years about it. 
I was far too old to be having nightmares about a bear from Barney, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, like, like, the shot, like, movies that I watch now that are scary, you know, like The Shining, like, Silence of the Lambs, things like that, they don't scare me, but if you made me watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, I can't do it. <laughs> like, still. Like, I, I just, I think that I've, like, built the image up in my head of being, like, ominous, you know, like, oh, and, scary and, Dick and it's Van Dyke. not, it's, yeah, scary, which you, it's, like, an oxymoronic thing, because Dick Van Dyke's so nice. I know, you he's You think so he's, like, scary. He's, like, a grandpa. Like, he a is. really nice grandpa. And he hasn't aged in, like, 25 years. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> it's very weird. That's your it first is. red flag. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the next scary movie is going to be Dick Van Dyke in the second and in the, in the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang remix playing the same character. <laughs> or not remix, remake, whatever. It's early in the morning. Remix works too, um, I guess. You know, it's, yeah, but I, I still, and there, there are some movies like that where I still have that image in my head and I probably haven't seen them in at least 15 years and I'm still like, I don't want to watch it. Like, yeah. I'm terrified. There's like, something there. Wanna, it's just, maybe it was the flying car. Maybe I'm just really scared of advances in technology. I wonder if I there's something know. in the the fact that it was a musical. Do you not like musicals? I was no, I was in musical theater oh, for years. Okay. <laughs> I was I was in musical theater since I was like twelve. Mm. So it's very odd. Maybe I just ate something bad when I was being treated by bang once and I was like never again. I don't know. <laughs> but um yeah, it's just that's my... I will watch The Shining every single day of my life, but I cannot do J.J. Bang Bang. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we um, have been talking a little bit um, about your book and about sort of your family and what it was like to write about them um, and sort of that experience, then going back to Vietnam. Um, so several pages of your book um, are devoted to your siblings who were deceased. Uh, and in one drawing, they kind of... It's, like, from the beginning of the book, and you kind of have, like, you and then your two sisters and your brother, and they're kind of, like, behind you, sort of, like, darkened, almost, like, shadows a little bit. Um, so when you were growing up, were you, like, consciously aware of them? Um, and then in one part of the book, you say that you viewed yourself as a, a um, replacement, like, during your childhood. So did, like, were they almost a, um, like, their own sort of, like, figures in your childhood, like, their own, like, almost presences? Yeah, I, I would like to say that, like, that was, like, s- some artistic license and my own interpretation interpretation, but that's just literally what my parents told me was that I was a replacement for my sister who died before me, and that my sister Lan was a replacement for the the baby who died before her. Um, It didn't strike me as weird that parents would say that to you uh, until I met other parents who had lost a child and had a second child and told me, yeah, I would never tell my second child that she was a replacement. Um, So thinking about it now, I'm like, oh, I guess that put a lot of pressure on me as a kid um, to make up for something that was lost for my parents. Yeah. So did you feel like you had, like, almost shoes to fill or that, like, your parents were, like, um, like they had certain expectations for you? Maybe. I I hadn't thought about that until you brought it up just now, but probably. Um, (laughs) I guess just growing up, um, I, I thought of my life as really linked to somebody else's death. So, like, Mm -hmm. death was always, like, this presence in my life, um, and my sisters were ghosts. And my mom had this dream one night that um, my my sister, who died right before me, came to visit, like, and she was an orphan child, and somebody had asked her to take in this girl, and um, she said yes, and it was bedtime, and she told me to scoot over. I, we slept in a big king-size bed, and she told me to scoot over and make room for this girl. So she told everybody this dream the morning after, and I was just a little kid. So the, like every night for a week following that, I like scooted over. Oh, oh. Sweet. it's sweet and kind of creepy, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like the like duality a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in your book, sort of like 
not in a flashback, sort of, I guess, like, the present, like, when you were writing it, um, you had pictures of your parents, and you say that, like, as they're aging, they're, like, stuck in limbo between two sets of expectations, like, when it comes to their later years, and maybe, you know, like, their, um, like, their care and things like that, so what exactly did you mean by that, and how do you, I guess, see it manifested with both your parents? Um, well, here in the U.S., we put our parents in nursing homes, generally, mm-hmm. right? Um, in Vietnam, um, elders live with us as they get older, and they're part of, like, a multi-generational family. Um, I'm trying to do that right now in the U.S. Uh, with my mother, but I got to say it's really hard because you lose a lot of your independence as the sandwich generation because mm-hmm. you've, you know, you've got your kid, and, like, my kid's 13, so he's into the hey, mom phase. <laughs> um, it comes full circle. Yeah, and then, then I've got my mother, too, like, asking me, um, have you eaten yet? Like, where mm-hmm. are you going? Um, and I just want to be a teenager myself sometimes, but I don't, I, I don't know how I get to be that, um, being in the in-between generation. So I guess I'm stuck in limbo between two sets of ways of dealing with the elder generation too. But I think for my parents, it's weird because they grew up a certain way and they did certain things for their parents, but now they're not getting it themselves. They're not getting mm. that elder care. Um, and... I guess in Vietnam, they would get to just relax now and be old people. But here in America, like people their age are running marathons or Mm -hmm. being very, very independent. So I don't know. I feel bad for them, too. Yeah, I know. um, My my dad's mom um, lives with my aunt and their family. And so I know um, a lot of families, and it's like maybe they start off with, you know, their grandparent or, like, one of their, like, older aunts or uncles living with them. Then maybe they transition to, like, a nursing home. Mm -hmm. Um, And even within my own family, I've kind of seen sort of that... um, that I guess like being caught between those two things and it's like well should I take care of them like because I feel responsible um or should I you know like in a nursing home and it's like how do you like how do you yourself deal with that and how and I guess it's sort of like I've seen my own parents and you know my family kind of be like well like I want to take care of them but I don't know if I would if I would do a like good enough job right I don't know if I can like do this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the coolest alternatives that I've heard about is um, creating communities where young people live with older people, but they're not necessarily related, and it's a voluntary relationship. So it seems like that could be cool, too, and also work for people who don't have kids or grandkids. Yeah, that's very true. Um, But, you know, my grandmother actually lived with us when I was young, um, and it was very interesting. And, like, I enjoyed it and everything. Um, it's great for the grandkids, it, I think. It is great for the grandkids. I could tell, like, it was very stressful for, like, my parents, and, like, they did a great job with it. But, um, like, you know, if you actually kind of look at history, like, it's actually very, like, across a lot of cultures, it's been a very common phenomenon for, like, multi-generational mm-hmm. kind of family, like, even, like, kind of sometimes even having extended family, like, um, aunts and uncles and everything. Uh, yeah, but, and I know... Like, the nuclear family, is, is, it's just so new, and it's, like, it's treated Mm -hmm. like it's just like this you know ancient like just kind of like oh this is how it's always been kind of way but it's very specific to america and it's very specific to just like late 20th century Mm -hmm. yeah and i know um i mean on both sides of my family we've you know like not my family we've had you know like 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 other relatives take in older relatives Mm -hmm. um and take care of them and things like that and then i have a lot of friends whose grandparents live with them or the grandparents live like right next door you know Mm -hmm. and things like that when my dad was growing up in new orleans um, like his his like aunt and uncle lived right next to him, and they weren't in the same house, but you know I mean they hung out mm-hmm. together all the time. They would go to their pool. Um, my uncle is almost a um, a, like a, a like 
second father to my dad, I would mm-hmm. say, just with how close they are. And so I think it is interesting, um, like DJ Global Spins was saying, how you do see now people are, you know, like there are a lot more nursing homes, things like that. Um, and so I think it's interesting because I think, I think one of the things in America that I sort of, like my opinion of it is like Americans are always um, like go, 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 mm-hmm. like yeah. on to the next thing. Like I have work, I have this, I have that. And so it's almost like they don't, they feel like they don't have enough time to devote right. to it. So like, okay, like, like just like put them there and then like I'll keep doing my own thing right and so I feel like sometimes like in other cultures that I've seen you know like when I've been in Europe too um is that like they really take care of like the older people in their society they do live in multi-generational houses um you know in homes and things like that and I think that that's one thing in America right now that um that um, a lot of people are struggling with yeah. is do I go with the trend of you know like giving them this really nice retirement or do I take care of them because I think that a lot of people feel that debt to their parents which is completely understandable of like they provided for me for so long and yeah. now I want to provide for them and they might feel a little bit of like shame yeah with sending them to a, like a nursing home I think that multi-generational households are going to turn into a, a new trend actually with how unaffordable housing is mm-hmm. so you're mm-hmm. actually going to have like I think more people more young people graduating from college or high school and staying home yeah, like a reverse kind of thing where it's yeah. like instead of the older people living mm-hmm. with them, their children do. Yeah. And, you know, like there have been a lot of studies about how like multi-generational housing and everything like that, like having your grandparents live with you, like if you're raising children and stuff like that or just taking care of them, that can have a lot of really positive impacts on the family, especially if like the person is still able to like drive and like be able to like do a couple things maybe like household tasks it can really actually help because like I find that our society we're so like we're so individualistic Mm -hmm. and we're always like like you said like go 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 like very focused on making like like doing your progress and doing it yourself um that like we don't realize that the value of like you know actually collaborating together and kind of taking time can actually increase our productivity yeah I mean multiple people raising a baby is pretty amazing. Definitely. I think mm-hmm. I think I feel like that would be like a really major boon to young mothers because mm-hmm. childcare is so expensive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, especially because it's not. I don't know how it is in California. It's like but sending it's your not kid to Harvard. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And there's all the pressure to send them to like fancy and then, school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure. Getting in line a year ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and you say like, oh, like your kid didn't go to pre-K sort of thing. I remember my dad. Um, my dad went to, like, grammar school in the in the 60s, and he said that, you know, I mean, some kids didn't start till first grade. Mm-hmm. And I feel like now, if you did that, you would be kind of, um, like, a, like looked down upon. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, oh, you mean that you didn't send your kid to pre-K? Your kid doesn't speak six languages? Yeah. Like, what are you, you know? And it's, I feel like it is, like, a societal pressure there, too, to be, like, to be starting these kids so young. And, I mean, you see those commercials on TV where it's, like, play your kid Van Gogh. Or not play their kid Van Gogh. What am I saying? Mozart. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Oh my gosh. Play your kid Mozart or Beethoven. While looking at Van Gogh. I've only yeah. I've only had one cup of coffee, guys. Um, but yeah, you know, like play your kid Mozart while they're still in the womb, you know, and things like <laughs> you gotta that. Gotta get ahead. Gotta get ahead. Those kids are already taking Harvard classes at the age of eight. You yeah. gotta get them right. I mean, I put my son in, pre- in kindergarten when he was four, but that was to save that Harvard tuition that I was paying for his, mm-hmm. for his, uh, pre-K um and I figured well if he flunks kindergarten it's not so bad (laughs) he almost did an extra year you know I mean I feel like we all flunked kindergarten I feel like kindergarten is one of those things where they're they just let you all go along you know just go along with the with the train 
you kind of know how to finger paint, so that's really the only curriculum. <laughs> and you're really good at sleeping, so yeah. no, no, it's, it's a lot higher pressure <laughs> now. He had to he had to know his letters before going in, and he didn't quite. Huh. Wait, oh you have man! To know before going in, yes. Then what's the point of pre-K? That's one of the most stressful things to me because honestly, how I don't I can't quite wrap my mind around how you teach a child to read. Just like that seems. Like, it's magic. It's magic. It really yeah. is magic. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should just watch some YouTube videos. I'm sure there's a watch tutorial. Watch a tutorial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, we talked, you spoke a little bit um, a few minutes ago about sort of like you always sort of knew about your siblings who were deceased and your parents talked about them a lot. Um, and you say in the book that your parents grieve cast like a gray stillness over your childhood. Um, so what exactly did you mean when you wrote that? Um, I think that immigration is this weird thing where there's this whole life experience that happened before and then there's a whole other life that happens after that moment of rupture and for a lot of people the context changes so much that it's really hard for them to explain what happened before that move Um, and for my parents because so many uh, traumatic things happened to them before the move they didn't talk about it in great detail because it would be hard for us to understand as kids so it was just always there and they would hint at it and we'd get little pieces of it but we didn't quite understand it so to me, it was just this atmosphere that I grew up in. It was like it was in the air, and it was definitely on my parents' minds, but like it was not in my daily life. Like it wasn't reflected mm-hmm. in like the commercials on television or the things that my teachers were getting us to talk about at school. So I don't know. It was just something I didn't quite understand. I couldn't put a finger on it when I was little. So when you were going through like the oral history process and talking to your parents and interviewing them. Um, did you kind of see them, like, open up a little bit in a way that you hadn't previously about what you call their almost, like, prior life that they had in Vietnam? Um, I think it would, in in a way it was my understanding that cleared up. Like, mm-hmm. they were always there. Like, I think that's the thing about parents. Like, they're these treasure troves of memories, and you just need a key to unlock them a lot of mm-hmm. the time. Um, and a lot of that key is just a good question or two or three or several um, and curiosity on your part and also like maturity on your part and being able to ask the right questions that get them to open up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned previously in the book um, your opinion, I believe at a young age, of Pete Wilson, um, who's the former governor of California and who we talked a little bit about um, before we began the interview, and you um, deride him really in the book for his support of anti-immigrant legislation. Um, so what is your current view of the anti-immigration rhetoric um, that's currently being seen in the American media landscape as well as coming from the current um, presidential administration? Well, it's not new. It feels, mm-hmm. it feels new coming after, you know, two terms of, uh, of Obama and, and that his rhetoric is so different around immigrants. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like there's some, there's some very familiar backlash for me because I was your age. I, I was in college when Pete Wilson was the governor and running for re-election on this very anti-immigrant platform where the bill that was on the ballot that year was um, one, it was Prop 187 in California, and that was going to make it so that if you were an illegal immigrant or the child of one, you could not access things like public education or the ER. Um, and it, yeah, so it meant that those institutions would have to report you, like a school would have wow. to report you if you were the child of an undocumented mm-hmm. immigrant. Um, and voters actually passed it, which is the crazy thing. Wow. Um, it later got struck down in the courts as unconstitutional, but mm-hmm. that was a whole legal battle that had to get fought after the people spoke their, their mind. Um, and Pete Wilson was like the figurehead behind that movement. 
Um, so, you know, when you've, when you've seen this stuff before, it doesn't surprise you so much. And it, I was a little bit impatient in the, the months right after the election as I had to wait for people to get over their shock mm-hmm. and, and for us to get to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, um, at the same time, I'm realistic that these waves of xenophobia have happened before over and over again in, in U.S. history. I'm also really aware of the stakes for the people who are impacted by policy. So I try to just put all of my energy into protecting our most vulnerable people um, in my in my work. Um, when I'm not talking about my book, I, I try to like push put my weight behind efforts to like protect people from the Muslim ban or um, protect undocumented immigrants from ICE raids or mm-hmm. um, protect or help people in their deportation cases who are coming out of prison but then um, instead of getting to go home after they serve a prison sentence getting put into ICE detention right away because they're immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something, I mean, I'm, I'm 20, and I, I remember watching Obama's, immig- um, not immigration, um, inauguration, mm-hmm. rather, um, when I was in fourth grade on, you know, like the, tele- not teleprompter, what am I saying, on the projector. Um, and so I think I do, like, sometimes forget that there is this whole other history um, of, you know, xenophobia and, like, what I would almost, or what I would call casual xenophobia, of it just being, you know, like, a thing, like, general knowledge, general, like, general beliefs, I guess. And so I think that a lot of times people, especially of, you know, DJ Global Spins and I's generation, forget that, and so they're, like, shocked. They're like, oh, my gosh, which, like, you should be shocked, you should be ashamed, you should, you know, want to take action, but at the same time, you should recognize that nothing, like, occurs in a vacuum, mm-hmm. and that yeah. it's all a pattern. Um, and so I think that that's something really important, but I think also it's important to, like, educate yourself about those things, because right. that's something that I've had to do. I mean, when I was in middle school and high school, nobody ever told me about, you know, like, Japanese internment. Yeah. I never yeah. knew about that. Yeah. And so it, it is it is important, and I, th- and I think it, um, important, especially now as we're seeing these things, to educate yourself about the history. And, and to, to push see back against from. any kind of narrative that um, glosses over those uncomfortable parts of our history and Obama mm-hmm. himself is actually guilty of spinning the narrative of like he, he often called America the greatest nation on earth in his speeches mm-hmm. right and so you believe in yourself as like this great nation um, that could do no harm yeah. um, but when you believe that then you have to go through this whole like uh, process of like shock and shame before you start to do anything about the things that are in front of your face and really inhumane absolutely agree because um in like our current political climate it's just there's so much going on that is just it's so important to educate yourself on and it's so important to be very active in either fighting for or fighting against um and so while like typically like I do agree in moderation in most areas of life there's a Martin Luther uh, King Jr. quote that I really agree with that says to be moderate in the face of great evil is to side with the evil and so um, I think that this is definitely a time where we really need to um, be very like powerful and very outspoken against the things that are very important to you. And um, it's just social advocacy is just like while it is pattern and everything, it's like because of like the way that the media is represented now and it's just like so constant and we like we have so much knowledge, we really need to like grab firm to like just our knowledge and just really fight against and just really be very focused on solidarity yeah and I think that I think that our country 
needs to be hopeful about where it's going, but I think Absolutely. we also need to be honest about where we've been. Right. Yeah. And to not gloss over it. Um, and I mean, we, we were talking earlier um, in one of the breaks from the interview that I'm from, I'm, I'm from um, Cherokee County in Georgia, which mm-hmm. is where like, the Trail of Tears began. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really didn't know the truth about the Trail of, the trail of Tears till I was in high school when I did research myself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize how glossed over it truly was and how atrocious mm-hmm. that part of history is. And it happened less than 50 miles from where I live. Um, and so I think that it is really imperative that we be honest, um, not only in educating ourselves, but in those around us. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, they always say if you don't know history, you're doomed to, you know, emulate it and repeat it. Yeah. Um, and so I think it is imperative to know all parts of our history and also to be honest um, about what's happened and to say not to, and not and to, to unequivocally say it was wrong and to recognize that and to then move forward keep and to not forget it and to keep it in the back of our minds. Right, and to do better. Yeah, because right. I feel like a lot of people uh, are worried that, like with, rep- like, with recognition of, like, complete honesty of what happened in our history and kind of acknowledging it, um, they lose kind of, like, that, like, extreme pride. Like, oh, America is the greatest nation on Earth. But at the same time, it's, like, it's, it's, you can still be proud while recognizing issues, while recognizing the truth of history, because that is how, like, development is made and how, like, things are actually made great. And you have to actually recognize the issues and then fix them, because you can't fix a broken pipe without realizing that it's broken. And you can make it into the great nation that you want yeah. it to be by participating in correcting the things that we've done wrong and... Mm-hmm. Um, recognizing injustice as injustice Mm -hmm. and try to make it just for everybody who lives here. Yeah. And we are a a really interesting social experiment. Absolutely. Um, I I, I feel quite optimistic about being an American. I mean, I think it's scary right now because the stakes are really high. We have, we risk a really great chance of moving very backwards Mm -hmm. in history. Um, but at the same time, I think like there is this really this this real possibility of like creating a place that sets a model for other countries in the world where people learn how to share space differently. Mm-hmm. It's really just about like having the right mentality going forward with stuff. Yeah, you know, it's really just giving yeah. yourself the correct mindset. And I, I mean, I've talked to people, um, you know, from other countries, like European countries mm-hmm. and Asian countries. Um, and they, you know, they'll talk about some policy, and I'll say, oh, like, that's really different from, you know, America, and they'll say, well, that's, like, a policy that's based on, you know, like, an American idea. Yeah. And that's, and we, you know, we talk more about it, and that's when I realized that, like, we have gone a little bit backwards, you know, like, we have, like, all these, um, these, um, illustrious, you know, like, goals, and these illustrious, you know, like, sayings, and, like, documents that we have, but I feel like, we've kind of, like, forgotten them a little bit. We've forgotten, mm-hmm. you know, what they were intended to do, and other countries have moved forward, and, you know, they have these, you know, these things and these programs and these ideas in their own countries, and they say, well, this is what America was. Right. Yeah. And this is what you were striving to be, and we took this because we liked what you were doing, mm-hmm. and we loved that idea, and we used it, but you didn't. You you abandoned it. You left it behind. And so I think it's interesting to see sort of this battle now that we're seeing, um, you know, in politics and society and you know cultural issues um of people really wanting to define america and to show it like for what they believe it truly is Mm -hmm. um and they're you know battling i guess like definitions of what america is what it was and what it is and what it can and should be um okay so you say um 
you have another um, really, really beautiful drawing, I believe, at, one, at the end of one of a chapter, um, and you say that, like, as a child, you dreamt of being free in your world. Um, so why, as a child, did you not feel free? Well, that's an interesting question to answer following what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I didn't feel free because my childhood was full of fear. Um, fear of the outside, um, f- full of my parents' fears because they were dislocated and my dad was suffering from PTSD. And I, so I think the world outside of our apartment building was scary to him and he transferred that fear to me. So he kept me inside. And so literally I just wanted to like, go outside more mm-hmm. and be able to um, feel comfortable in this new home. But like the outside world was sometimes hostile like I um, illustrate in the book, you know, like we dealt with racism on a daily level. Um, there were school shootings mm-hmm. that were happening in the U.S., and that was like not something that was part of, like as 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 violent as the Vietnam War was. Like we didn't have school shootings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like a, a scary new reality. Um, so I guess there is a kind of a fear that I experienced as a new American that, I don't know, maybe related to the fear I feel in the American public right now that is maybe behind some of the xenophobia and some of the policy making. Um, people are acting out their fears in strange ways. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's something that I've heard um, a lot is that like a lot of the policies are based on fear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fear of the unknown, fear of, you know, things that you don't know, fear of things that you're, you know, afraid of, obviously, which is, like, what fear is, what am I saying? (laughs) Um, Things you don't understand. Things you don't understand, yeah, and things that you're just not familiar with that you don't see on a regular basis, and so, because you don't see them, you don't know what they're really like, Mm -hmm. so you are afraid of them, Um, and so I think that that's something really, really interesting that I thought, and then, you know, I thought about my own childhood, but also my life now, when I read that, and I was like, you know, am I free? Do I feel free? Do I feel, you know able to express myself, able to say what I want, able to be the person that I want to be, um, and how has that maybe changed from when I was younger, and so that was, there were, that was one moment, um, of several when I was reading the book where I really had to stop and think, and it really, really made me think, which is one of the things that I love about the book, is that it really caused me to reevaluate, um, a lot of things about what I had thought about myself, what I had thought about, you know, like America and our narrative, especially surrounding Vietnam, um, and Asia and the Vietnam War, and so I think that that was one of the things that I really took away from it and that I'm really, really thankful for um, was that it kind of forced me to really evaluate myself because that's something I feel like a lot of college students, but also um, just, you know, like working people and adults in general is we get so caught up in things and we, you know, just kind of like a, like ride the wave and we don't really take time to like be introspective mm-hmm. and to think about ourselves. And so it was really nice for me to take, you know, like a few hours and read the book and then stop and really, really get to think about myself. Um, so that was something that I absolutely loved about the book. Thank so. you. So I really, really loved it. Um, so in one part of the book, um, you talk about your experience watching a Vietnam War special um, with Walter Cronkite, mm-hmm. who, if you're listening, I'm sure that you all know who that is, um, unless you're 13 and you have the really deep teenage boy voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was with Walter Cronkite, um, and he was talking about how the, um, how the Vietnamese people included in the special did not have a voice of their own, which mm-hmm. is kind of what you were saying in the book. Um, do you think that the media in general, but in particular the American media, um, paint caricatures of the people who live in the areas that they cover? And if so, how? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, it's a, there's a, I, f- I feel frustrated a lot of the times with how um, the American media 
will portray people who are not American. Um, pretty broad brush in general. Um, kind of general phrases like I, I thought it was really funny to have like my neighborhood in in, in Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon at the time um, be paint like be called uh, like a, a haven for hoodlums and the criminal elements of society. Yeah, I remember you saying that. Yeah, um, like it's 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 such a caricature. I'm like, no, they were poor people, and then there were people like my parents who were teachers, but like they lived, you know, among the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and like to me, they were people with names. They weren't they weren't categories of people like that. Um, so I felt like the I felt like media coverage of Vietnamese people during the Vietnam War was more cartoony than my own cartoon drawings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I guess like when I listen to coverage of, say, um, what's happening in Syria, I also have a really hard time understanding what's going on because people are getting painted with a broad brush of terrorist mm-hmm. or insurgent or and I have a hard time figuring out figuring out who's who and I understand it's, that it's a really complicated mm-hmm. situation but like I have two master's degrees and I read really well and I'm having a hard time understanding yeah so yeah. um how is like somebody with like a high school education supposed to understand with any kind of nuance um who Syrian refugees are and why mm-hmm. they're not supposed to be afraid of them or why they sh- should like you know, be able to separate somebody who might be dangerous from somebody who's like a mother and child. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I have a friend who um, is a Syrian refugee and he lives now legally in the Netherlands. Um, and I, when I first met him, he was doing a talk um, in The Hague in the Netherlands. And, um, you know, like I think of myself as, you know, a progressive person who reads the news and who keeps up, but I didn't realize going in and meeting him and hearing him speak that I did have those biases um, and that I really didn't know what to expect. And I think I already had an opinion of the Syrian conflict and the Syrian civil war, but meeting him completely changed that. Yeah. And I think it really it really did force me to sort of realize that, you know, American general, but especially the American media does, you know, paint these images of people and does paint them with a broad brush, like you said. Um, and meeting him has completely changed my outlook, not only on Syrian refugees, but on refugees in general. And mm-hmm. I think that um, it's a really good experience to talk with people like that and to meet them because it really does make you see that they're human. Right. Um, and I think that that's something that we forget in a lot of news coverage. And I know that in another part of the book, um, you had that really famous photograph, um, which I've seen, um, of that um, Vietnam man being shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really interesting, too, because you, especially now in the media, like, you see these uh, these pictures and these snapshots, and people will talk only about the picture and not about the entire context surrounding it, which yeah. I think is also damaging, not only to the people who are in that picture, but the people um, who, like, hear that coverage of it. Right, and, like, the irony of it is that the man who took the photograph and, like, won a Pulitzer Prize for it was, like, you people are not paying attention to the co- the, the context of the photograph that I took, and he felt really guilty for the effect that it had on the people in the photograph. Mm-hmm. You know, you can really just see, like, the way that it really... Um, it's just very predominant in American society because, like, you know, a lot of people... Uh, it just embeds itself in like certain phrases that we use every day like you know when you don't eat all your food people are like oh well there are children starving in Africa and like while that is true um, that's another example of how we like really kind of paint caricatures of people because the only um, time like when you think of like people from Africa it's it's very you don't think of it in like terms of individual uh, countries mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're and you say oh everybody from Africa is this yeah mm-hmm. everybody is that because like you get this image that's just been like force fed to you of mm-hmm. like you know, like huts 
and like wearing um like tri- traditional like very tribal kind of clothing and carrying jugs of water on yeah, your head carrying jugs of water in your head um that type of thing when that's actually while it is part of it it also one it diminishes um i guess kind of like the autonomy of the tribe and kind of the importance and like uh complexities mm-hmm. of them because like just the use the use of the word tribe it's like they are technically their own like like nation state mm-hmm. because they have their own culture it's already complex it has it meets all the markers for you know a nation state while it's smaller it's like it's its own culture and we like we diminish that very frequently but there are plenty of large industrialized cities all over Africa and all these different countries every country really has very big um, uh, places like uh, very big capitals and so it's just we don't ever get that picture, the realistic picture handed to us. And so that's another example, kind of like a caricature that we paint for ourselves. Yeah, and we're really privileged that other people have to deal with these funky caricatures that we mm-hmm. make of other people in the world. Like there are whole um, websites dedicated to showing people what Africa is actually like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because Americans like don't understand that Africa is not a country. Yeah. I mean, like we yeah, should be absolutely. we should be embarrassed I hear really that we cool. think that. My um, my grandparents were going um, to Africa to go hunting because mm-hmm. my grandpa likes hunting, um, and I think my and my grandma was telling me that I think it was when they went to go um, like get their phone plan changed so that they could make calls in Africa, um, and the girl was like, "Oh, what continent is that on?" Oh god! And my grandma was like, "It's its own continent, and there are separate countries." It was wild, and my <laughs> and I remember my grandma was on the phone with my mom, and I was listening, and. My grandmother worked in education and was just, like, livid. She was like, this is ridiculous, this is crazy, like, how can you believe that? Like, who teaches you these things? It's astounding, the lack of knowledge of geography, just basic mm-hmm. geography that Americans have. American geography, like, you don't know states, come on. I don't yeah. know if I've told you this before, but I did have a friend one time, and <laughs> she was so sweet, but, oh my gosh. She thought that um, Korea was just south of Mexico. And when I told her it was indeed in Asia, uh, she she was so surprised. She's like, why is everybody so scared about nuclear war then? It's so far away. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I just, I had to take a moment and, like, step back just so I could address it kindly, you know? Because, like, you, you want to be kind to people, but sometimes you just want to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and be like, what have you been learning all your life? Yeah, it's a really weird thing. I think it's like a particularly American phenomenon that we get to be uneducated about mm-hmm. the rest of the world mm-hmm. um, yeah. because yeah, because we're economically on top of the world, so we can mm-hmm. get away with it. But it doesn't it doesn't make us better people to be this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like I don't know. At the same time, I like feel really funky about like the the role of education um, in like I don't know making people woke or something because then does that create like a sort of a classist society too where the woke people are the educated ones and like who gets to be educated and stuff does that like make some does that draw some lines in in ways that are unfair that can definitely even like create resentment yeah 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 and I think I think that's one of the really interesting things um with education 
too is that um, I know that I've um, I've watched like documentaries about like the schooling in Finland mm-hmm. and Finland outlawed public uh, not public schools private schools yeah and people were like oh like why would they ever do that but it's because like you go like everybody in your area go to the same public school so that you all have the same education but also so that like the kids who might come from like more affluent families also go to school with the kids of you know poor and like less like affluent families and so you really do have that mixing so like it so that, that education can't be classist right so that you mm-hmm. all have the same opportunities and you all mm-hmm. have the same chances um, to really be able to get an education to really be able to know the world around you but I think that one of the really damaging things uh, sort of getting back to like the question about the American media um, is that I think that like not enough of us realize that these people that we're seeing on the news are people mm-hmm. they all have their own identities they all have their own stories and their own context in which they live and I think for me meeting my friend who is Syrian completely changed mm-hmm. my outlook on the entire thing and really made me realize like not only that I had my own biases from learning about the conflict for so long but also it makes me approach other things with a different mindset and makes me remember the humanity of these people right. when when people on the news say you know um, like like um, like all these people coming up from you know South America who are fleeing and you talk about them you know in big numbers big proportions stuff like that but then you remember that each one of those that's are right people that you can talk to that you can have a relationship with who are just like you who care about their family you know want to protect their children and I feel like, like, um, too often in the media landscape, we see them just being clumped together, and we forget mm-hmm. that they're people because yeah. we're so desensitized to the large numbers and well, large masses. Mm-hmm. This is how this is how we get a how governments get away with doing very inhumane things. We um, they spin narratives, and two of the most common. Um, tools that are used, tactics that are used to dehumanize other people are to clump them into massive numbers so that they um, they excite our fears the way like a, a wave of cockroaches might. Mm-hmm. If you turn people into a wave of cockroaches, it's really easy to then justify, you know, shooting tear gas at a bunch of women and children. Um, or if you um, like label a whole group of people uh, vermin, makes it easier to justify like rounding them up into ghettos and then putting them on trains and then putting Mm -hmm. them into camps right this is familiar stuff um and then the other way to do it is to demonize them by just calling out uh calling them you know things that make us fearful like criminals and rapists and drug dealers Mm -hmm. right if we say those are the people who are coming then it makes sense to people to close down our borders but if we talk about them as whole human beings who are complicated who have a history and who have a reason for fleeing their countries then it gets a lot more complicated and I think that we forget that we're all human. Yeah. And that a lot of us do have faults, you know, I'm not saying, you know, none, none, none of us are perfect. And that is to be human. But it's, exactly, yeah. it's to be imperfect. And I think that we all need to realize that we're all trying to, you know, protect each, not only ourselves, but also each other, and that mm-hmm. we really do need to remember the humanity. Because somebody might be different from me, you might have never met somebody, you know, from a different country, you might have, have never even been outside of the United States. But I think that it's important to remember that not everything we see is true and that these people are people and that they're suffering um, and that they are struggling on a daily basis with what we struggle with. You know, like, they want to feed their kids. They want to protect themselves and their families, you know, their spouses and their partners, things like that. And so I think it's important as we see that becoming um, a theme of the news a lot that we definitely remember that. And when we see this coverage that might be biased, that we remember that there's a whole complex situation that can't be explained in a 60-second soundbite. Exactly. Yeah. And we also have to understand that maybe our wealth comes from um, 
the non-wealth of others near us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, like you were saying, it's like, we just, we have so much media, so much news constantly from all over the world just coming in at us all the time. And so it's like, when you recognize the complexities, like you were talking about the complexities of other people, the humanity of other people, it can actually be a little bit scary because like the way that um, our society is like set up, just with like, like the constant media bombarding like on TV, mm-hmm. online, just everywhere you go on technology, it's like so much. And so to like be able to open yourself up to receiving the complexities of other people and the vulnerabilities of other people and make yourself vulnerable at that time as well, it's just a very, very scary thing when there's so much like negativity constantly. And um, so maybe that's why a lot of people have a lot of fear mm-hmm. about kind of like listening to other people. And so that's why people kind of clump everybody into one category. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes we're afraid to relate to people. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. We're afraid to say, you know, I've gone through the same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I'm afraid of the same things. Or, you know, I'm like, I'm worried about that too. And so I think that that's something where you really do have to humble yourself mm-hmm. and say, like, you know, I've struggled too. Mm-hmm. I've gone through hard times. I've been afraid. And I think that that's, you know, something that we all kind of have to deal with is how do we level ourselves and how do we relate to other people on that basic human level? Um, I mean, it's difficult for all of us, even if, you know, like, and you're using your word, like, woke, you know, even if you think that you're, like, the most woke person ever, like, you still have those implicit biases and you still, Absolutely. you still have to, you know, level yourself with other people. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter, you know, what they've been through. Like, they're struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they need you to understand. And I think, I think like you said, all's well, or as well, rather, um, you know, for America, we are on the top. And so I think sometimes it is hard for us um, to come down. I mean, you know, I, when I was studying abroad in May, um, I had people, you know, tell me, like, yo, you know, like, um, like America has done all these bad things. And I'd list them out, and I'd be like, yes, we have. And I'm, I'm not going to apologize for them because they're repulsive and inhumane and things like this. And so I think that we do need to be, you know, going back to the theme of honesty as well, we need to be honest and we need to realize um, that, you know, we can have our own opinions and that people don't always, like, and that... Like, the American media doesn't always take the time to really, like, go in depth and that they do want these, um, like, quick sound bites, especially in, like, the, the very rapid news cycle that we're seeing now. Yeah. Um, we don't have the time to, like, go in depth to every issue because, like, things are happening all the time. I mean, I'll read, it, like, one article from somewhere and then I'll, um, like, go back to the main page and it's, like, already, like, breaking news. Exactly. And I'm like, how do I ever catch up? And so I think it's important for us to definitely take time um, to be able to process everything and to read everything and to be knowledgeable and not just take those sound bites um, at face value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like historians because they help us, like, get the longer story, too. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, so one of the one of the um, really I guess like, like pivotal moments obviously in the book um, is when you and your family um, flee Vietnam when you arrive on the boat early in the morning. Um, do you remember that moment? Because it because it seemed like from your drawing it seemed really vivid when I was reading it. So I didn't know if you remember anything nope. about it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a reconstructed memory. Gotcha. Yeah, I had to um, pull from my other experiences being on a boat and. Uh, being on a boat at sunrise or sunset, looking at the quality of light, and then just transferring that bodily knowledge into um, how I would represent somebody else's memories that was being described to me. After going through so much and then finally being able to... It's kind of like... It's like the bittersweetness of, like, you know, like escaping war but also having to flee something that's so um, well-known to you you know, to your family, like, 
leaving your entire way of life, everything that you knew. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, um, yeah I felt like it needed some some good drawing. <laughs> definitely accomplished yeah. that. Thank you. Um, and also, I thought it was really cool that you had, like, the actual pictures mm. of you and your family that were taken mm-hmm. in the UN refugee camp. Did you, how did you, like, go about finding them? Were they, like, did you just have them? Are they public record? Um, no, we just had them. They're little, like this. We had an, gotcha. have an envelope full of them. Like, um, I think they just gave them to us. And that, that was, it's something that a lot of people who went through the refugee camps have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that I wanted to, it was really important for me to, like, pick the right moment to drop those in the book. And the mm-hmm. fact that they're the only photographs um, is intentional. And the fact that you don't see them till almost the end of the book is also intentional. Because mm-hmm. um, in the liberal media, we, we use those photographs to try to tug at people's heartstrings and open their wallets so that they'll donate to whatever causes, yeah. right? But that has a dehumanizing effect, too, because then we paint refugees as like these angels in mm-hmm. their in their moment of greatest desperation, and then that's where you get the image of Africa being like, yeah. you know, starving children. So I didn't want to paint um, all Vietnamese people as like refugees from the get go either. Um, I wanted you to get to know them as people with names and 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 personalities that were different from each other first mm-hmm. before you saw us, us as those refugees. Gotcha. Yeah, I just love that part of the book. I thought that it was really interesting to because they are the only pictures. And so, you know, I, I felt like I had been not on the journey with you, but, you know, like reading the journey and like being a part of it. And so then to see those pictures, I was like, there they are, you know, mm-hmm. and I was so happy to see They're them. They're real, yeah. At yeah. the end of the book, I, w- I remember I was sitting in the living room with my parents and they were watching TV and I was like at the end of the book and it came up very suddenly and like I didn't realize it, but then like I was like, I was fighting back tears and I was like, sir, don't cry, don't do it. Like, and I was just like, get back in there too, <laughs> you know? Like, I was like, huh, I can't be breaking down right now. Like, I know I'm at home, but like, come on like the second I break down is like it's just all gonna come out because it was just it was so emotional and you just conveyed everything so well through your art and through your words oh thank you um I uh I have a hard time talking about this stuff in like you know regular social settings it's kind of heavy mm-hmm. to bring up at like a, a cocktail party right yeah so I I think books are great for putting all of that stuff in and then just sliding it over to other people yeah. and they can process it on their own time and in private spaces too so one other question um that I have so the Vietnam War I feel like is very built up I guess and like the psyche um, of Americans. I mean, I know that my own grandfather, um, you know, flew bombers in the Vietnam War. I know that a lot of us, um, especially in my generation of grandparents, mm-hmm. who are involved, who remember it. Um, and so I think that America does sort of, like, stress this one narrative of it. Um, and this one, you know, um, like, obviously, uh, American-sided, you know, mm-hmm. narrative of, like, we went in and we saved them and, you know, like, containment and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Um, so how do you think that that is damaging? Like, how, how do you think that, that influences... Um, the generations of Americans, such as DJ Global Spins and myself, who have kind of grown up with that um, and grown up with this kind of one image um, and one side of the Vietnam War? Well, I guess for one, it doesn't ex- explain to you the presence of so many Vietnamese refugees and where who they are and what they're doing here. And it doesn't explain to you like some of the odd things that you might see them doing, like flying the old Vietnamese flag with the three red stripes mm-hmm. and what that's all about. Because like we also like South Vietnam also has its veterans mm-hmm. from the ARVN, and they have their scars of like having lost their country and like the the pride that comes from being the loser mm-hmm. is like something that takes a lot of years to heal from, and so a lot of people are still stuck in this past where they're like staunchly anti-communist in ways that don't make sense anymore, um, 
But if you don't understand their history or like what they went through, like you're never going to understand what that's all about. Um, and so, for, ex for example, it's confusing to Americans when they want to like open up and they so they say, OK, we're going to listen to the other side now. And then they start flying the communist flag and like they don't understand why that would be so upsetting mm -hmm. to um, Vietnamese people here because they don't recognize that it was a civil war. So that there were Vietnamese people on two sides of the Vietnamese perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so just understanding that like politics is complicated, wars are complicated, um, I think would help people understand like say Syrian refugees with like differing opinions about the Syrian government as well. Um, remind me again what, 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 what I'm answering here. Mm -hmm. um, just sort of about um, like the narrative of the um, like oh the, the single Vietnam narrative War yeah and things yes. like that and yeah. I think one other thing before you answer that I think also like we we contextualize the like quote unquote Vietnam War as only when Americans were there and then like we leave and like nothing else happens so I feel like right. a lot of us don't know about like the surrounding events right right yeah I mean like that's the other thing is like a lot of I, I, I meet a lot of people who were part of the peace movement in the US and they are very proud to tell me that you know they protested the war and I'm like that's great and stuff but it actually didn't have that much of impact on my life because that war continued for Vietnamese people after the US pulled out um, and it was actually really really bloody mm -hmm. um, so like good for you but you know again like guilt is not that useful to to mm -hmm. other people like that's you and your guilt um, and then there's this other country that you still left an impact on. And in more ways than one as well. So, like, I also have to battle the single narrative that I present, right? So I am um, an ethnic majority in Vietnam. There are 54 ethnic groups in Vietnam mm -hmm. um, that I didn't grow up having to know about because I was part of the dominant culture. Um, there are Hmong people that were affected. There are Montagnards who fought with the U.S. who are impacted. Um, U.S. bombing in, in Cambodia and Laos like destroyed those countries, mm -hmm. like caused uh, caused the, the rise of the Khmer Rouge that like killed off two yeah. million people and like killed off an entire generation of writers and artists in Cambodia. So now like who's going to tell that story? Mm -hmm. So the Vietnam War is bigger than Vietnamese experience too. So I have to be conscious of the ways in which like when spotlight is on me, I'm casting a shadow on other experiences mm -hmm. that were impacted by the same war. So I also have to make space for other voices um, that mm -hmm. are not included in my own version of the story. Yeah, and I think I think that a lot of what you know I see in my own classes um, and a lot of my like history and my politics classes is that we are making space mm -hmm. for those other narratives, and we're making space, you know, for people saying like you know, like, this is, like, um, the American track record and things like that, but we want to make space for the people that were hurt by this. Um, and so I think that that's a lot of kind of what we're seeing now is people telling other people to make space for those, you know, opinions and those um, experiences because they're valid and they mm -hmm. need to be heard because I think for too long they've kind of been pushed to the side because, of course, you know, the uh, yeah, the winners are the ones that write history. Right. Um, and if there is, you know, in the case of the, of the, um, of the uh, Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, they, there is anybody to tell that story and so we have to open ourselves up um, to allow that to allow those, those um, experiences and those narratives to come forward Absolutely. so all right so well, we're looking forward to them yeah. <laughs> yes yes most definitely is there anything else anything coming up that you want to maybe talk about a little bit um, I guess for people who want to know like how I am making space for this um, 
the next book is about Southeast Asians and deportation. And so the background to that is a lot of like the impact of the war on people and families. Um, so because my, my family story kind of fits like a model minority narrative mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but a lot of people's didn't. And those are the people I'm writing about next. Um, a book takes a while, so I'm going to try to put out pieces of it as part of my advocacy for immigrants and refugees. Um, so follow me online. Um, shall I say my handles? Sure. Okay. Yeah, go for so it. Um, on Instagram, I'm T Bowie, but it's spelled T E A B U O Y, like the pronunciation of my name. Um, and uh, Twitter, which I use a little bit less, is Ms T Bowie M S T H I B U I. I I didn't have a Twitter account, and I was teaching uh, a computer class with high schoolers. So they were I like, why don't you have a Twitter? So I was like, okay, Ms T Bowie. I never thought I would use it, and I'm stuck with the handle. <laughs> I feel like that's telling with a lot of things. I feel like a lot of us, um, like our old, like, uh, like Gmail accounts, where they were like, horse girl, 97, <laughs> justinbieber at gmail.com. And people are like, oh, but I have a new email now. But I just remember being, you know, right. in like fourth grade. And my teacher would be like, let me just send it to your Gmail. And the person would spout out something, which I now think is like absolutely hysterical. Um <laughs> But all right, so that was our conversation with T-Boy, who, again, is the author of The Best We Could Do, um, which is her graphic novel about her family's history um, from from Vietnam um, in the United States. Please read it. Go out, read it, buy it. It's amazing. I cannot wait to buy my own copy of it. I was borrowing DJ Global Spence's copy. Um, But please go out, read it. It's really, really amazing, Um, and it definitely impacted me a lot. Probably going to read it again probably this weekend because I absolutely love it. Um, so definitely recommend it. Definitely follow T. Bowie's work um, and definitely follow Passport Playlist's work as well. Um, we are always here Fridays, 12 to 2. Yeah. We're, we're always hanging out and the, we just force you to listen to us. Absolutely. And like once you follow us on Instagram, you're going to see even more of our shenanigans. <laughs> you're going to see all of our all of our boomerangs, all of our good stuff. Because we know you absolutely love them all. We know that you watch them. Yes, We can absolutely. see it. We know you watch them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to us. Is there anything, any parting words Bye. that you want to say? <laughs> Bye. <laughs>